What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Volume 2, Chapter 5 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume 2, Chapter 5, First Quarrel. March 25th. Arthur is getting tired, not of me, I trust, but of the idle, quiet life he leads. And no wonder, for he has so few sources of amusement. He never reads anything but newspapers and sporting magazines. And when he sees me occupied with a book, he won't let me rest till I close it. In fine weather, he generally manages to get through the time pretty well but on rainy days of which we have had a good many of late it is quite painful to witness his ennui i do all i can to amuse him but it is impossible to get him to feel interested in what i most like to talk about while on the other hand he likes to talk about things that cannot interest me or even that annoy me and these please him the best of all for his favourite amusement is to sit or loll beside me on the sofa and tell me stories of his former amours always turning upon the ruin of some confiding girl or the cozening of some unsuspecting husband and when i express my horror and indignation he lays it all to the charge of jealousy and laughs till the tears run down his cheeks i used to fly into passions or melt into tears at first but seeing that his delight increased in proportion to my anger and agitation i have since endeavoured to suppress my feelings and receive his revelations in the silence of calm contempt but still he reads the inward struggle in my face and misconstrues my bitterness of soul for his unworthiness into the pangs of wounded jealousy and when he has sufficiently diverted himself with that or fears my displeasure will become too serious for his comfort he tries to kiss and soothe me into smiles again never were his caresses so little welcome as then this is double selfishness displayed to me and to the victims of his former love there are times when with a momentary pang a flash of wild dismay i ask myself helen what have you done but i rebuke the inward questioner and repel the obtrusive thoughts that crowd upon me for were he ten times as sensual and impenetrable to good and lofty thoughts i well know i have no right to complain and i don't and won't complain i do and will love him still and i do not and will not regret that i have linked my fate with his april fourth we have had a downright quarrel the particulars are as follows arthur had told me at different intervals the whole story of his intrigue with lady f which i would not believe before it was some consolation however to find that in this instance the lady had been more to blame than he for he was very young at the time and she had decidedly made the first advances if what he said was true i hated her for it for it seemed as if she had chiefly contributed to his corruption and when he was beginning to talk about her the other day i begged he would not mention her for i detested the very sound of her name not because you loved her arthur mind but because she injured you and deceived her husband and was altogether a very abominable woman whom you ought to be ashamed to mention but he defended her by saying that she had a doting old husband whom it was impossible to love then why did she marry him said i 
for his money was the reply then that was another crime and her solemn promise to love and honour him was another that only increased the enormity of the last you are too severe upon the poor lady laughed he but never mind helen i don't care for her now and i never loved any of them half as much as i do you so you needn't fear to be forsaken like them if you had told me these things before arthur i never should have given you the chance wouldn't you my darling most certainly not he laughed incredulously i wish i could convince you of it now cried i starting up from beside him and for the first time in my life and i hope the last i wished i had not married him helen said he more gravely do you know that if i believed you now i should be very angry but thank heaven i don't though you stand there with your white face and flashing eyes looking at me like a very tigress i know the heart within you perhaps a trifle better than you know it yourself without another word i left the room and locked myself up in my own chamber in about half an hour he came to the door and first he tried the handle then he knocked won't you let me in helen said he no you have displeased me i replied and i don't want to see your face or hear your voice again till the morning he paused a moment as if dumbfoundered or uncertain how to answer such a speech and then turned and walked away this was only an hour after dinner and knew he would find it very dull to sit alone all the evening and this considerably softened my resentment though it did not make me relent i was determined to show him that my heart was not his slave and i could live without him if i chose and i sat down and wrote a long letter to my aunt of course telling her nothing of all this soon after ten o'clock i heard him come up again but he passed my door and went straight to his own dressing-room where he shut himself in for the night i was rather anxious to see how he would meet me in the morning and not a little disappointed to behold him enter the breakfast-room with a careless smile are you cross still helen said he approaching as if to salute me i coldly turned to the table and began to pour out the coffee observing that he was rather late he uttered a low whistle and sauntered away to the window where he stood for some minutes looking out upon the pleasing prospect of sullen grey clouds streaming rain soaking lawn and dripping leafless trees and muttering execrations on the weather and then sat down to breakfast while taking his coffee he muttered it was damned cold you should not have left it so long said i he made no answer and the meal was concluded in silence it was a relief to both when the letter-bag was brought in it contained upon examination a newspaper and one or two letters for him and a couple of letters for me which he tossed across the table without a remark one was from my brother the other from millicent hargrave who is now in london with her mother his i think were business letters and apparently not much to his mind for he crushed them into his pocket with some muttered expletives that i should have reproved him for at any other time the paper he set before him and pretended to be deeply absorbed in its contents during the remainder of breakfast and a considerable time after the reading and answering of my letters and the direction of household concerns afforded me ample employment for the morning after lunch i got my drawing and from dinner till bedtime i read meanwhile poor arthur was sadly at a loss for something to amuse him or to occupy his time he wanted to appear as busy and as unconcerned as i did had the weather at all permitted he would doubtless have ordered his horse and set off to some distant region no matter where immediately after breakfast and not return till night 
had there been a lady anywhere within reach of any age between fifteen and forty-five he would have sought revenge and found employment in getting up or trying to get up a desperate flirtation with her but being to my private satisfaction entirely cut off from both these sources of diversion his sufferings were truly deplorable when he had done yawning over his paper and scribbling short answers to his shorter letters he spent the remainder of the morning and the whole of the afternoon in fidgeting about from room to room watching the clouds cursing the rain alternately petting and teasing and abusing his dogs sometimes lounging on the sofa with a book that he could not force himself to read and very often fixedly gazing at me when he thought i did not perceive it with the vain hope of detecting some traces of tears or some tokens of remorseful anguish in my face but i managed to preserve an undisturbed though grave serenity throughout the day i was not really angry i felt for him all the time and longed to be reconciled but i determined he should make the first advances or at least show some signs of an humble and contrite spirit first for if i began it would only minister to his self-conceit increase his arrogance and quite destroy the lesson i wanted to give him he made a long stay in the dining-room after dinner and i fear took an unusual quantity of wine but not enough to loosen his tongue for when he came in and found me quietly occupied with my book too busy to lift my head on his entrance he merely murmured an expression of suppressed disapprobation and shutting the door with a bang went and stretched himself at full length on the sofa and composed himself to sleep but his favourite cocker dash that had been lying at my feet took the liberty of jumping upon him and beginning to lick his face he struck it off with a smart blow and the poor dog squeaked and ran cowering back to me when he woke up about half an hour later he called it to him again but dash only looked sheepish and wagged the tip of his tail he called again more sharply but dash only clung the closer to me and licked my hand as if imploring protection enraged at this his master snatched up a heavy book and hurled it at his head the poor dog set up a piteous outcry and ran to the door i let him out and then quietly took up the book give that book to me said arthur in no very courteous tone i gave it to him why did you let the dog out he asked you knew i wanted him by what token i replied by your throwing the book at him but perhaps it was intended for me no but i see you've got a taste of it said he looking at my hand that had also been struck and was rather severely grazed i returned to my reading and he endeavoured to occupy himself in the same manner but in a little while after several portentous yawns he pronounced his book to be cursed trash and threw it onto the table then followed eight or ten minutes of silence during the greater part of which i believe he was staring at me at last his patience was tired out what is that book helen he exclaimed i told him is it interesting yes very humph i went on reading or pretending to read at least i cannot say there was much communication between my eyes and my brain for while the former ran over the pages the latter was earnestly wondering when arthur would speak next and what he would say and what i should answer but he did not speak again till i rose to make the tea and then it was only to say he should not take any he continued lounging on the sofa and alternately closing his eyes and looking at his watch and at me till bedtime when i rose and took my candle and retired helen cried he the moment i had left the room i turned back and stood awaiting his commands what do you want arthur i said at length nothing replied he go 
i went but hearing him mutter something as i was closing the door i turned again it sounded very like confounded slut but i was quite willing it should be something else were you speaking arthur i asked no was the answer and i shut the door and departed i saw nothing more of him till the following morning at breakfast when he came down a full hour after the usual time you're very late was my morning salutation you needn't have waited for me was his and he walked up to the window again it was just such weather as yesterday oh this confounded rain he muttered but after studiously regarding it for a minute or two a bright idea seemed to strike him for he suddenly exclaimed but i know what i'll do and then returned and took his seat at the table the letter-bag was already there waiting to be opened he unlocked it and examined the contents but said nothing about them is there anything for me i asked no he opened the newspaper and began to read you'd better take your coffee suggested i it will be cold again you may go said he if you've done i don't want you i rose and withdrew to the next room wondering if we were to have another such miserable day as yesterday and wishing intensely for an end of these mutually inflicted torments shortly after i heard him ring the bell and give some orders about his wardrobe that sounded as if he meditated a long journey he then sent for the coachman and i heard something about the carriage and the horses and london and seven o'clock to-morrow morning that startled and disturbed me not a little i must not let him go to london whatever comes of it said i to myself he will run into all kinds of mischief and i shall be the cause of it but the question is how am i to alter his purpose well i will wait a while and see if he mentions it i waited most anxiously from hour to hour but not a word was spoken on that or any other subject to me he whistled and talked to his dogs and wandered from room to room much the same as on the previous day at last i began to think i must introduce the subject myself and was pondering how to bring it about when john unwittingly came to my relief with the following message from the coachman please sir richard says one of the horses has got a very bad cold and he thinks sir if you could make it convenient to go the day after to-morrow instead of to-morrow he could physic it to-day so as confound his impudence interjected the master please sir he says it would be a deal better if you could persisted john for he hopes there'll be a change in the weather shortly and he says it's not likely when a horse is so bad with a cold and physicked and all devil take the horse cried the gentleman well tell him i'll think about it he added after a moment's reflection he cast a searching glance at me as the servant withdrew expecting to see some token of deep astonishment and alarm but being previously prepared i preserved an aspect of stoical indifference his countenance fell as he met my steady gaze and he turned away in very obvious disappointment and walked up to the fireplace where he stood in an attitude of undisguised dejection leaning against the chimney-piece with his forehead sunk upon his arm where do you want to go arthur said i to london replied he gravely what for i asked because i cannot be happy here why not because my wife doesn't love me she would love you with all her heart if you deserved it what must i do to deserve it this seemed humble and earnest enough and i was so much affected between sorrow and joy that i was obliged to pause a few seconds before i could steady my voice to reply if she gives you her heart said i you must take it thankfully and use it well and not pull it in pieces and laugh in her face because she cannot snatch it away 
he now turned round and stood facing me with his back to the fire come then helen are you going to be a good girl said he this sounded rather too arrogant and the smile that accompanied it did not please me i therefore hesitated to reply perhaps my former answer had implied too much he had heard my voice falter and might have seen me brush away a tear are you going to forgive me helen he resumed more humbly are you penitent i replied stepping up to him and smiling in his face heartbroken he answered with a rueful countenance yet with a merry smile just lurking within his eyes and about the corners of his mouth but this could not repulse me and i flew into his arms he fervently embraced me and though i shed a torrent of tears i think i never was happier in my life than at that moment then you won't go to london arthur i said when the first transport of tears and kisses had subsided no love unless you will go with me i will gladly i answered if you think the change will amuse you and if you will put off the journey till next week he readily consented but said there was no need of much preparation as he should not be for staying long for he did not wish me to be londonized and to lose my country freshness and originality by too much intercourse with the ladies of the world i thought this folly but i did not wish to contradict him now i merely said that i was of very domestic habits as he well knew and had no particular wish to mingle with the world so we are to go to london on monday the day after to-morrow it is now four days since the termination of our quarrel and i am sure it has done us both good it has made me like arthur a great deal better and made him behave a great deal better to me he has never once attempted to annoy me since by the most distant allusion to lady f or any of those disagreeable reminiscences of his former life i wish i could blot them from my memory or else get him to regard such matters in the same light as i do well it is something however to have made him see that they are not fit subjects for a conjugal jest he may see farther some time i will put no limits to my hopes and in spite of my aunt's forebodings and my own unspoken fears i trust we shall be happy yet end of volume two chapter five recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter six of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter six first absence on the eighth of april we went to london on the eighth of may i returned in obedience to arthur's wish very much against my own because i left him behind if he had come with me i should have been very glad to get home again for he led me such a round of restless dissipation while there that in that short space of time i was quite tired out he seemed bent upon displaying me to his friends and acquaintances in particular and the public in general on every possible occasion and to the greatest possible advantage it was something to feel that he considered me a worthy object of pride but i paid dear for the gratification for in the first place to please him i had to violate my cherished predilections my almost rooted principles in favour of a plain dark sober style of dress i must sparkle in costly jewels and deck myself out like a painted butterfly just as i had long since determined i would never do and this was no trifling sacrifice in the second place i was continually straining to satisfy his sanguine expectations 
and to do honour to his choice by my general conduct and deportment and fearing to disappoint him by some awkward misdemeanour or some trait of inexperienced ignorance about the customs of society especially when i acted the part of hostess which i was not infrequently called upon to do and in the third place as i intimated before i was wearied of the throng and bustle the restless hurry and ceaseless change of a life so alien to all my previous habits at last he suddenly discovered that the london air did not agree with me and i was languishing for my country home and must immediately return to grassdale i laughingly assured him that the case was not so urgent as he appeared to think it but i was quite willing to go home if he was he replied that he should be obliged to remain a week or two longer as he had business that required his presence then i will stay with you said i but i can't do with you helen was his answer as long as you stay i shall attend to you and neglect my business but i won't let you i returned now that i know you have business to attend to i shall insist upon your attending to it and letting me alone and to tell you the truth i shall be glad of a little rest i can take my rides and walks in the park as usual and your business cannot occupy all your time i shall see you at meal-times and in the evenings at least and that will be better than being leagues away and never seeing you at all but my love i cannot let you stay how can i settle my affairs when i know that you are here neglected i shall not feel myself neglected while you are doing your duty arthur i shall never complain of neglect if you had told me before that you had anything to do it would have been half done before this and now you must make up for lost time by redoubled exertions tell me what it is and i will be your taskmaster instead of being a hindrance no no persisted the impracticable creature you must go home helen i must have the satisfaction of knowing that you are safe and well though far away don't i see that you are looking quite rakish your bright eyes are faded and that tender delicate bloom has quite deserted your cheek that is only with too much gaiety and fatigue it is not i tell you it is the london air you are pining for the fresh breezes of your country home and you shall feel them before you are two days older and remember your situation dearest helen on your health you know depends the health if not the life of our future hope then you really wish to get rid of me positively i do and i will take you down myself to grassdale and then return i shall not be absent above a week or fortnight at most but if i must go i will go alone if you must stay it is needless to waste your time in the journey there and back but he did not like the idea of sending me alone why what helpless creature do you take me for i replied that you cannot trust me to go a hundred miles in our own carriage with our own footman and maid to attend me if you come with me i shall assuredly keep you but tell me arthur what is this tiresome business and why did you never mention it before it is only a little business with my lawyer said he and he told me something about a piece of property he wanted to sell in order to pay off a part of the encumbrances on his estate but either the account was a little confused or i was rather dull of comprehension for i could not clearly understand how that should keep him in town a fortnight after me still less can i now comprehend how it should keep him a month for it is nearly that time since i left him and no signs of his return as yet in every letter he promises to be with me in a few days 
and every time deceives me or deceives himself his excuses are vague and insufficient i cannot doubt that he is got among his former companions again oh why did i leave him i wish i do intensely wish he would return june twenty ninth no arthur yet and for many days i have been looking and longing in vain for a letter his letters when they come are kind if fair words and endearing epithets can give them a claim to the title but very short and full of trivial excuses and promises that i cannot trust and yet how anxiously i look forward to them how eagerly i open and devour one of those little hastily scribbled returns for the three or four long letters hitherto unanswered he has had from me oh it is cruel to leave me so long alone he knows i have no one but rachel to speak to for we have no neighbours here except the hargraves whose residence i can dimly descry from these upper windows embosomed among those low woody hills beyond the dale i was glad when i learnt that millicent was so near us and her company would be a soothing solace to me now but she is still in town with her mother there is no one at the grove but little esther and her french governess for walter is always away i saw that paragon of manly perfections in london he seemed scarcely to merit the eulogiums of his mother and sister though he certainly appeared more conversable and agreeable than lord lowborough more candid and high-minded than mr grimsby and more polished and gentlemanly than mr hattersley arthur's only other friend whom he judged fit to introduce to me oh arthur why won't you come why won't you write to me at least you talked about my health how can you expect me to gather bloom and vigour here pining in solitude and restless anxiety from day to day it would serve you right to come back and find my good looks entirely wasted away i would beg my uncle and aunt or my brother to come and see me but i do not like to complain of my loneliness to them and indeed loneliness is the least of my sufferings but what is he doing what is it that keeps him away it is this ever-recurring question and the horrible suggestions it raises that distract me july third my last bitter letter has wrung from him an answer at last and a rather longer one than usual but still i don't know what to make of it he playfully abuses me for the gall and vinegar of my latest effusion tells me i can have no conception of the multitudinous engagements that keep him away but avers that in spite of them all he will assuredly be with me before the close of next week though it is impossible for a man so circumstanced as he is to fix the precise day of his return meantime he exhorts me to the exercise of patience that first of woman's virtues and desires me to remember the saying absence makes the heart grow fonder and comfort myself with the assurance that the longer he stays away the better he shall love me when he returns until he does return he begs i will continue to write to him constantly for though he is sometimes too idle and often too busy to answer my letters as they come he likes to receive them daily and if i fulfil my threat of punishing his seeming neglect by ceasing to write he shall be so angry that he will do his utmost to forget me he adds this piece of intelligence respecting poor millicent hargrave your little friend millicent is likely before long to follow your example and take upon her the yoke of matrimony in conjunction with a friend of mine hattersley you know has not yet fulfilled his direful threat 
of throwing his precious person away on the first old maid that chose to evince a tenderness for him but he still preserves a resolute determination to see himself a married man before the year is out only said he to me i must have somebody that will let me have my own way in everything not like your wife huntingdon she is a charming creature but she looks as if she had a will of her own and could play the vixen upon occasion i thought you're right there man but i didn't say so i must have some good quiet soul that will let me do just what i like and go where i like keep at home or stay away without a word of reproach or complaint for i can't do with being bothered well said i i know somebody that will suit you to a tee if you don't care for money and that's hargrave's sister millicent he desired to be introduced to her forthwith for he said he had plenty of the needful himself or should have when his old governor chose to quit the stage so you see helen i have managed pretty well both for your friend and mine poor millicent but i cannot imagine she will ever be led to accept such a suitor one so repugnant to all her ideas of a man to be honoured and loved fifth alas i was mistaken i have got a long letter from her this morning telling me she is already engaged and expects to be married before the close of the month i hardly know what to say about it she writes or what to think to tell you the truth helen i don't like the thoughts of it at all if i am to be mr hattersley's wife i must try to love him and i do try with all my might but i have made very little progress yet and the worst symptom of the case is that the further he is from me the better i like him he frightens me with his abrupt manners and strange hectoring ways and i dread the thoughts of marrying him then why have you accepted him you will ask and i didn't know i had accepted him but mamma tells me i have and he seems to think so too i certainly didn't mean to do so but i did not like to give him a flat refusal for fear mamma should be grieved and angry for i knew she wished me to marry him and i wanted to talk to her first about it so i gave him what i thought was an evasive half negative answer but she says it was as good as an acceptance and he would think me very capricious if i were to attempt to draw back and indeed i was so confused and frightened at the moment i can hardly tell what i said and next time i saw him he accosted me in all confidence as his affianced bride and immediately began to settle matters with mamma i had not courage to contradict them then and how can i do it now i cannot they would think me mad besides mamma is so delighted with the idea of the match she thinks she has managed so well for me and i cannot bear to disappoint her i do object sometimes and tell her what i feel but you don't know how she talks mr hattersley you know is the son of a rich banker and as esther and i have no fortunes and walter very little our dear mamma is very anxious to see us all well married that is united to rich partners it is not my idea of being well married but she means it all for the best she says when i am safe off her hands it will be such a relief to her mind and she assures me it will be a good thing for the family as well as for me even walter is pleased at the prospect and when i confessed my reluctance to him he said it was all childish nonsense do you think it nonsense helen i should not care if i could see any prospect of being able to love and admire him but i can't there is nothing about him to hang one's esteem and affection upon he is so diametrically opposite to what i imagine my husband should be do write to me 
and say all you can to encourage me don't attempt to dissuade me for my fate is fixed preparations for the important event are already going on around me and don't say a word against mr hattersley for i want to think well of him and though i have spoken against him myself it is for the last time hereafter i shall never permit myself to utter a word in his dispraise however he may seem to deserve it and whoever ventures to speak slightingly of the man i have promised to love to honour and obey must expect my serious displeasure after all i think he is quite as good as mr huntingdon if not better and yet you love him and seem to be happy and contented and perhaps i may manage as well you must tell me if you can that mr hattersley is better than he seems that he is upright honourable and open-hearted in fact a perfect diamond in the rough he may be all this but i don't know him i know only the exterior and what i trust is the worst part of him she concludes with good-bye dear helen i am waiting anxiously for your advice but mind you let it be all on the right side alas poor millicent what encouragement can i give you or what advice except that it is better to make a bold stand now though at the expense of disappointing and angering both mother and brother and lover than to devote your whole life hereafter to misery and vain regret saturday thirteenth the week is over and he is not come all the sweet summer is passing away without one breath of pleasure to me or benefit to him and i had all along been looking forward to this season with the fond delusive hope that we should enjoy it so sweetly together and that with god's help in my exertions it would be the means of elevating his mind and refining his taste to a due appreciation of the salutary and pure delights of nature and peace and holy love but now at evening when i see the round red sun sink quietly down behind those woody hills leaving them sleeping in a warm red golden haze i only think another lovely day is lost to him and me and at morning when roused by the flutter and chirp of the sparrows and the gleeful twitter of the swallows all intent upon feeding their young and full of life and joy in their own little frames i open the window to inhale the balmy soul-reviving air and look out upon the lovely landscape laughing in dew and sunshine i too often shame that glorious scene with tears of thankless misery because he cannot feel its freshening influence and when i wander in the ancient woods and meet the little wild flowers smiling in my path or sit in the shadow of our noble ash-trees by the waterside with their branches gently swaying in the light summer breeze that murmurs through their feathery foliage my ears full of that low music mingled with the dreamy hum of insects my eyes abstractedly gazing on the glassy surface of the little lake before me with the trees that crowd about its bank some gracefully bending to kiss its waters some rearing their stately heads high above but stretching their wide arms over its margin all faithfully mirrored far far down in its glassy depths though sometimes the images are partially broken by the sport of aquatic insects and sometimes for a moment the whole is shivered into trembling fragments by a transient breeze that swept the service too roughly still i have no pleasure for the greater the happiness that nature sets before me the more i lament that he is not here to taste it the greater the bliss we might enjoy together 
the more i feel our present wretchedness apart yes ours he must be wretched though he may not know it and the more my senses are pleased the more my heart is oppressed for he keeps it with him confined amid the dust and smoke of london perhaps shut up within the walls of his own abominable club but most of all at night when i enter my lonely chamber and look out upon the summer moon sweet regent of the sky floating above me in the black blue vault of heaven shedding a flood of silver radiance over park and wood and water so pure so peaceful so divine and think where is he now what is he doing at this moment wholly unconscious of this heavenly scene perhaps revelling with his boon companions perhaps god help me it is too too much twenty-third thank heaven he is come at last but how altered flushed and feverish listless and languid his beauty strangely diminished his vigour and vivacity quite departed i have not upbraided him by word or look i have not even asked him what he has been doing i have not the heart to do it for i think he is ashamed of himself he must be so indeed and such inquiries could not fail to be painful to both my forbearance pleases him touches him even i am inclined to think he says he is glad to be home again and god knows how glad i am to get him back even as he is he lies on the sofa nearly all day long and i play and sing to him for hours together i write his letters for him and get him everything he wants and sometimes i read to him and sometimes i talk and sometimes only sit by him and soothe him with silent caresses i know he does not deserve it and i fear i am spoiling him but this once i will forgive him freely and entirely i will shame him into virtue if i can and i will never let him leave me again he is pleased with my attentions it may be grateful for them he likes to have me near him and though he is peevish and testy with his servants and his dogs he is gentle and kind to me what he would be if i did not so watchfully anticipate his wants and so carefully avoid or immediately desist from doing anything that has a tendency to irritate or disturb him with however little reason i cannot tell how intensely i wish he were worthy of all this care last night as i sat beside him with his head in my lap passing my fingers through his beautiful curls this thought made my eyes overflow with sorrowful tears as it often does but this time a tear fell on his face and made him look up he smiled but not insultingly dear helen he said why do you cry you know that i love you and he pressed my hand to his feverish lips and what more could you desire only arthur that you would love yourself as truly and as faithfully as you are loved by me that would be hard indeed he replied tenderly squeezing my hand i don't know whether he fully understood my meaning but he smiled thoughtfully and even sadly a most unusual thing with him and then he closed his eyes and fell asleep looking as careless and sinless as a child as i watched that placid slumber my heart swelled fuller than ever and my tears flowed unrestrained august twenty fourth arthur is himself again as lusty and reckless as light of heart and head as ever and as restless and hard to amuse as a spoilt child and almost as full of mischief too especially when wet weather keeps him within doors i wish he had something to do 
some useful trade or profession or employment anything to occupy his head or his hands for a few hours a day and give him something besides his own pleasure to think about if he would play the country gentleman and attend to the farm but that he knows nothing about and won't give his mind to consider or if he would take up with some literary study or learn to draw or to play as he is so fond of music i often try to persuade him to learn the piano but he is far too idle for such an undertaking he has no more idea of exerting himself to overcome obstacles than he has of restraining his natural appetites and these two things are the ruin of him i lay them both to the charge of his harsh yet careless father and his madly indulgent mother if ever i am a mother i will zealously strive against this crime of overindulgence i can hardly give it a milder name when i think of the evils it brings happily it will soon be the shooting season and then if the weather permit he will find occupation enough in the pursuit and destruction of the partridges and pheasants we have no grouse or he might have been similarly occupied at this moment instead of lying under the acacia tree pulling poor dash's ears but he says it is dull work shooting alone he must have a friend or two to help him let them be tolerably decent then arthur said i the word friend in his mouth makes me shudder i know it was some of his friends that induced him to stay behind me in london and kept him away so long indeed from what he has unguardedly told me or hinted from time to time i cannot doubt that he frequently showed them my letters to let them see how fondly his wife watched over his interests and how keenly she regretted his absence and that they induced him to remain week after week and to plunge into all manner of excesses to avoid being laughed at for a wife-ridden fool and perhaps to show how far he could venture to go without danger of shaking the fond creature's devoted attachment it is a hateful idea but i cannot believe it is a false one well replied he i thought of lord lowborough for one but there is no possibility of getting him without his better half our mutual friend annabella so we must ask them both you're not afraid of her are you helen he asked with a mischievous twinkle in his eyes of course not i answered why should i and who besides hargrave for one he will be glad to come though his own place is so near for he has little enough land of his own to shoot over and we can extend our depredations into it if we like and he is thoroughly respectable you know helen quite a lady's man and i think grimsby for another he's a decent quiet fellow enough you'll not object to grimsby i hate him but however if you wish it i'll try to endure his presence for a while all a prejudice helen a mere woman's antipathy no i have solid grounds for my dislike and is that all why yes i think so hattersley will be too busy billing and cooing with his bride to have much time to spare for guns and dogs at present he replied and that reminds me that i have had several letters from millicent since her marriage and that she either is or pretends to be quite reconciled to her lot she professes to have discovered numberless virtues and perfections in her husband some of which i fear less partial eyes would fail to distinguish though they sought them carefully with tears and now that she is accustomed to his loud voice and abrupt uncourteous manners she affirms she finds no difficulty in loving him as a wife should do and begs i will burn that letter wherein she spoke so unadvisedly against him so that i trust she may yet be happy but if she is 
it will be entirely the reward of her own goodness of heart for had she chosen to consider herself the victim of fate or of her mother's worldly wisdom she might have been thoroughly miserable and if for duty's sake she had not made every effort to love her husband she would doubtless have hated him to the end of her days end of volume two chapter six recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter seven of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter seven the guests september twenty third our guests arrived about three weeks ago lord and lady lowborough have now been married above eight months and i will do the lady the credit to say that her husband is quite an altered man his looks his spirits and his temper are all perceptibly changed for the better since i last saw him but there is room for improvement still he is not always cheerful nor always contented and she often complains of his ill humour which however of all persons she ought to be the last to accuse him of as he never displays it against her except for such conduct as would provoke a saint he adores her still and would go to the world's end to please her she knows her power and she uses it too but well knowing that to wheedle and coax is safer than to command she judiciously tempers her despotism with flattery and blandishments enough to make him deem himself a favoured and a happy man and yet at times a sombre shadow overclouds his brow even in her presence but evidently the result of despondency rather than of ill-humour and generally occasioned by some display of her ill-regulated temper or misguided mind some wanton trampling upon his most cherished opinions some reckless disregard of principle that makes him bitterly regret that she is not as good as she is charming and beloved i pity him from my heart for i know the misery of such regrets but she has another way of tormenting him in which i am a fellow-sufferer or might be if i chose to regard myself as such this is by openly but not too glaringly coquetting with mr huntingdon who is quite willing to be her partner in the game but i don't care for it because with him i know there is nothing but personal vanity and a mischievous desire to excite my jealousy and perhaps to torment his friend and she no doubt is actuated by much the same motives only there is more of malice and less of playfulness in her manoeuvres it is obviously therefore my interest to disappoint them both as far as i am concerned by preserving a cheerful undisturbed serenity throughout and accordingly i endeavour to show the fullest confidence in my husband and the greatest indifference to the arts of my attractive guest i have never reproached the former but once and that was for laughing at lord lowborough's depressed and anxious countenance one evening when they had both been particularly provoking and then indeed i said a good deal on the subject and rebuked him sternly enough but he only laughed and said you can feel for him helen can't you i can feel for any one that is unjustly treated i replied and i can feel for those that injure them too why helen you are as jealous as he is cried he laughing still more and i found it impossible to convince him of his mistake so from that time i have carefully refrained from any notice of the subject whatever and left lord lowborough to take care of himself 
he either has not the sense or the power to follow my example though he does try to conceal his uneasiness as well as he can but still it will appear in his face and his ill-humour will peep out at intervals though not in the expression of open resentment they never go far enough for that but i confess i do feel jealous at times most painfully bitterly so when she sings and plays to him and he hangs over the instrument and dwells upon her voice with no affected interest for then i know he is really delighted and i have no power to awaken similar fervour i can amuse and please him with my simple songs but not delight him thus i might retaliate if i chose for mr hargrave is disposed to be very polite and attentive to me as his hostess especially so when arthur is the most neglectful whether in mistaken compassion for me or ambitious to show off his own good breeding by comparison with his friend's remissness i cannot tell but in either case his civilities are highly distasteful to me if arthur is a little careless of course it is unpleasant to have the fault exaggerated by contrast and to be pitied as a neglected wife when i am not such is an insult i can ill endure but for hospitality's sake i endeavour to suppress my impulse of scarcely reasonable resentment and behave with decent civility to our guest who to give him his due is by no means a disagreeable companion he has good conversational powers and considerable information and taste and talks about things that arthur never could be brought to discuss or to feel any interest in but arthur dislikes me to talk to him and is visibly annoyed by his commonest acts of politeness not that my husband has any unworthy suspicions of me or of his friend either as i believe but he dislikes me to have any pleasure but in himself any shadow of homage or kindness but such as he chooses to vouchsafe he knows he is my son but when he chooses to withhold his light he would have my sky to be all darkness he cannot bear that i should have a moon to mitigate the deprivation this is unjust and i am sometimes tempted to tease him accordingly but i won't yield to the temptation if he should carry his trifling with my feelings too far i shall find some other means of checking him twenty eighth yesterday we all went to the grove mr hargrave's much neglected home his mother frequently asks us over that she might have the pleasure of her dear walter's company and this time she had invited us to a dinner-party and got together as many of the country gentry as were within reach to meet us the entertainment was very well got up but i could not help thinking about the cost of it all the time i don't like mrs hargrave she is a hard pretentious worldly-minded woman she has money enough to live very comfortably if she only knew how to use it judiciously and had taught her son to do the same but she is ever straining to keep up appearances with that despicable pride that shuns the semblance of poverty as of a shameful crime she grinds her dependents pinches her servants and deprives even her daughters and herself of the real comforts of life because she will not consent to yield the palm in outward show to those who have three times her wealth and above all because she has determined her cherished son shall be enabled to hold up his head with the highest gentleman in the land the same son i imagine is a man of expensive habits no reckless spendthrift and no abandoned sensualist but one who likes to have everything handsome about him and to go to a certain length in youthful indulgences not so much to gratify his own tastes 
as to maintain his reputation as a man of fashion in the world and a respectable fellow among his own lawless companions while he is too selfish to consider how many comforts might be obtained for his fond mother and sisters with the money he thus wastes upon himself as long as they can contrive to make a respectable appearance once a year when they come to town he gives himself little concern about their private stintings and struggles at home this is a harsh judgment to form of dear noble-minded generous-hearted walter but i fear it is too just mrs hargrave's anxiety to make good matches for her daughters is partly the cause and partly the result of these errors by making a figure in the world and showing them off to advantage she hopes to obtain better chances for them and by thus living beyond her legitimate means and lavishing so much on their brother she renders them portionless and makes them burdens on her hands poor millicent i fear has already fallen a sacrifice to the manoeuvrings of this mistaken mother who congratulates herself on having so satisfactorily discharged her maternal duty and hopes to do as well for esther but esther is a child as yet a little merry romp of fourteen as honest-hearted and as guileless and simple as her sister but with a fearless spirit of her own that i fancy her mother will find some difficulty in bending to her purposes end of volume two chapter seven recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter eight of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter eight a misdemeanor october ninth while the gentlemen are ranging the woods and lady lowborough is busy writing her letters i will return to my chronicle for the purpose of recording sayings and doings the last of the kind i hope i shall ever have cause to describe it was on the night of the fourth a little after tea that annabella had been singing and playing with arthur as usual at her side she had ended her song but still she sat at the instrument and he stood leaning on the back of her chair conversing in scarcely audible tones with his face in very close proximity with hers i looked at lord lowborough he was at the other end of the room talking with messrs hargrave and grimsby but i saw him dart towards his lady and his host a quick impatient glance expressive of intense disquietude at which grimsby smiled determined to interrupt the tete-a-tete i rose and selecting a piece of music from the music-stand stepped up to the piano intending to ask the lady to play it but i stood transfixed and speechless on seeing her seated there listening with what seemed an exultant smile on her flushed face to his soft murmurings with her hand quietly surrendered to his clasp the blood rushed first to my heart and then to my head for there was more than this almost at the moment of my approach he cast a hurried glance over his shoulder towards the other occupants of the room and then ardently pressed the unresisting hand to his lips on raising his eyes he beheld me and dropped them again confounded and dismayed she saw me too and confronted me with a look of hard defiance i laid the music on the piano and retired i felt ill but i did not leave the room happily it was getting late and could not be long before the company dispersed i went to the fire and leant my head against the chimney-piece in a minute or two someone asked me if i felt unwell i did not answer 
indeed at the time i knew not what was said but i mechanically looked up and saw mr hargrave standing beside me on the rug shall i get you a glass of wine said he no thank you i replied and turning from him i looked round lady lowborough was beside her husband bending over him as he sat with her hand on his shoulder softly talking and smiling in his face and arthur was at the table turning over a book of engravings i seated myself in the nearest chair and mr hargrave finding his services were not desired judiciously withdrew shortly after the company broke up and as the guests were retiring to their rooms arthur approached me smiling with the utmost assurance are you very angry helen murmured he this is no jest arthur said i seriously but as calmly as i could unless you think it a jest to lose my affection for ever what so bitter he exclaimed laughingly clasping my hand between both his but i snatched it away in indignation almost in disgust for he was obviously affected with wine then i must go down on my knees said he and kneeling before me with clasped hands uplifted in mock humiliation he continued imploringly forgive me helen dear helen forgive me and i'll never do it again and burying his face in his handkerchief he affected to sob aloud leaving him thus employed i took my candle and slipping quietly from the room hastened upstairs as fast as i could but he soon discovered that i had left him and rushing up after me caught me in his arms just as i had entered the chamber and was about to shut the door in his face no no by heaven you shan't escape me so he cried then alarmed at my agitation he begged me not to put myself in such a passion telling me i was white in the face and should kill myself if i did so let me go then i murmured and immediately he released me and it was well he did for i was really in a passion i sunk into the easy-chair and endeavoured to compose myself for i wanted to speak to him calmly he stood beside me but did not venture to touch me or to speak for a few seconds then approaching a little nearer he dropped on one knee not in mock humility but to bring himself nearer my level and leaning his hand on the arm of the chair he began in a low voice it is all nonsense helen a jest a mere nothing not worth a thought will you never learn he continued more boldly that you have nothing to fear from me that i love you wholly and entirely or if he added with a lurking smile i ever give a thought to another you may well spare it for those fancies are here and gone like a flash of lightning while my love for you burns on steadily and forever like the sun you little exorbitant tyrant will not that be quiet a moment will you arthur said i and listen to me and don't think i am in a jealous fury i am perfectly calm feel my hand and i gravely extended it towards him but closed it upon his with an energy that seemed to disprove the assertion and made him smile you needn't smile sir said i still tightening my grasp and looking steadfastly on him till he almost quailed before me you may think it all very fine mr huntingdon to amuse yourself with rousing my jealousy but take care you don't rouse my hate instead and when you have once extinguished my love you will find it no easy matter to kindle it again well helen i won't repeat the offence but i meant nothing by it i assure you i had taken too much wine and i was scarcely myself at the time you often take too much and that is another practice i detest he looked up astonished at my warmth 
yes i continued i never mentioned it before because i was ashamed to do so but now i'll tell you that it distresses me and may disgust me if you go on and suffer the habit to grow upon you as it will if you don't check it in time but the whole system of your conduct to lady lowborough is not referable to wine and this night you knew perfectly well what you were doing well i'm sorry for it replied he with more of sulkiness than contrition what more would you have you are sorry that i saw you no doubt i answered coldly if you had not seen me he muttered fixing his eyes on the carpet it would have done no harm my heart felt ready to burst but i resolutely swallowed back my emotion and answered calmly you think not no replied he boldly after all what have i done it's nothing except as you choose to make it a subject of accusation and distress what would lord lowborough your friend think if he knew all or what would you yourself think if he or any other had acted the same part to me throughout as you have to annabella i would blow his brains out well then arthur how can you call it nothing an offence for which you would think yourself justified in blowing another man's brains out is it nothing to trifle with your friend's feelings and mine to endeavour to steal a woman's affections from her husband what he values more than his gold and therefore what is more dishonest to take are the marriage vows a jest and is it nothing to make it your sport to break them and to tempt another to do the same can i love a man that does such things and coolly maintains it is nothing you are breaking your marriage vows yourself said he indignantly rising and pacing to and fro you promise to honour and obey me and now you attempt to hector over me and threaten and accuse me and call me worse than a highwayman if it were not for your situation helen i would not submit to it so tamely i won't be dictated to by a woman though she be my wife what will you do then will you go on till i hate you and then accuse me of breaking my vows he was silent a moment and then replied you never will hate me returning and resuming his former position at my feet he repeated more vehemently you cannot hate me as long as i love you but how can i believe that you love me if you continue to act in this way just imagine yourself in my place would you think i loved you if i did so would you believe my protestations and honour and trust me under such circumstances the cases are different he replied it is a woman's nature to be constant to love one and one only blindly tenderly and forever bless them dear creatures and you above them all but you must have some commiseration for us helen you must give us a little more license for as shakespeare has it however we do praise ourselves our fancies are more giddy and unfirm more longing wavering sooner lost and won than women's are do you mean by that that your fancies are lost to me and won by lady lowborough no heaven is my witness that i think her mere dust and ashes in comparison with you and shall continue to think so unless you drive me from you by too much severity she is a daughter of earth you are an angel of heaven only be not too austere in your divinity and remember that i am a poor fallible mortal come now helen won't you forgive me he said gently taking my hand and looking up with an innocent smile if i do you will repeat the offence i swear by don't swear i'll believe your word as well as your oath i wish i could have confidence in either try me then helen 
only trust and pardon me this once and you shall see come i am in hell's torments till you speak the word i did not speak it but i put my hand on his shoulder and kissed his forehead and then burst into tears he embraced me tenderly and we've been good friends ever since he has been decently temperate at table and well conducted towards lady lowborough the first day he held himself aloof from her as far as he could without any flagrant breach of hospitality since that he has been friendly and civil but nothing more in my presence at least nor i think at any other time for she seems haughty and displeased and lord lowborough is manifestly more cheerful and more cordial towards his host than before but i shall be glad when they are gone for i have so little love for annabella that it is quite a task to be civil to her and as she is the only woman here besides myself we are necessarily thrown so much together next time mrs hargrave calls i shall hail her advent as quite a relief i have a good mind to ask arthur's leave to invite the old lady to stay with us till our guests depart i think i will she will take it as a kind attention and though i have little relish for her society she will be truly welcome as a third to stand between lady lowborough and me the first time the latter and i were alone together after that unhappy evening was an hour or two after breakfast on the following day when the gentlemen were gone out after the usual time spent in the writing of letters the reading of newspapers and desultory conversation we sat silent for two or three minutes she was busy with her work and i was running over the columns of a paper from which i had extracted all the pith some twenty minutes before it was a moment of painful embarrassment to me and i thought it must be infinitely more so to her but it seems i was mistaken she was the first to speak and smiling with the coolest assurance she began your husband was merry last night helen is he often so my blood boiled in my face but it was better she should seem to attribute his conduct to this than to anything else no replied i and never will be so again i trust you gave him a curtain lecture did you no but i told him i disliked such conduct and he promised me not to repeat it i thought he looked rather subdued this morning she continued and you helen you've been weeping i see that's our grand resource you know but doesn't it make your eyes smart and do you always find it to answer i never cry for effect nor can i conceive how any one can well i don't know i never had occasion to try it but i think if lowborough were to commit such improprieties i'd make him cry i don't wonder at your being angry for i'm sure i'd give my husband a lesson he would not soon forget for a lighter offence than that but then he never will do anything of the kind for i keep him in too good order for that are you sure you don't arrogate too much of the credit to yourself lord lowborough was quite as remarkable for his abstemiousness for some time before you married him as he is now i have heard oh about the wine you mean yes he's safe enough for that and as to looking askance to another woman he's safe enough for that too while i live for he worships the very ground i tread on indeed and are you sure you deserve it why as to that i can't say you know we're all fallible creatures helen we none of us deserve to be worshipped but are you sure your darling huntingdon deserves all the love you give to him i knew not what to answer to this i was burning with anger but i suppressed all outward manifestations of it and only bit my lip and pretended to arrange my work 
at any rate resumed she pursuing her advantage you can console yourself with the assurance that you are worthy of all the love he gives to you you flatter me said i but at least i can try to be worthy of it and then i turned the conversation end of volume two chapter eight recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter nine of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter nine parental feelings december twenty fifth last christmas i was a bride with a heart overflowing with present bliss and full of ardent hopes for the future though not unmingled with foreboding fears now i am a wife my bliss is sobered but not destroyed my hopes diminished but not departed my fears increased but not yet thoroughly confirmed and thank heaven i am a mother too god has sent me a soul to educate for heaven and give me a new and calmer bliss and stronger hopes to comfort me but where hope rises fear must lurk behind and when i clasp my little darling to my breast or hang over his slumbers with unutterable delight and a world of hope within my heart one of two thoughts is ever at hand to check my swelling bliss the one he may be taken from me the other he may live to curse his own existence in the first i have this consolation that the bud though plucked would not be withered only transplanted to a fitter soil to ripen and blow beneath a brighter sun and though i might not cherish and watch my child's unfolding intellect he would be snatched away from all the suffering and sins of earth and my understanding tells me this would be no great evil but my heart shrinks from the contemplation of such a possibility and whispers i could not bear to see him die and relinquish to the cold and cruel grave this cherished form now warm with tender life flesh of my flesh and shrine of that pure spark which it should be my life's sweet labour to keep unsullied from the world and ardently implores that heaven would spare him still to be my comfort and my joy and me to be his shield instructor friend to guide him along the perilous path of youth and train him to be god's servant while on earth a blessed and honoured saint in heaven but in the other case if he should live to disappoint my hopes and frustrate all my efforts to be a slave of sin the victim of vice and misery a curse to others and himself eternal father if thou beholdest such a life before him tear him from me now in spite of all my anguish and take him from my bosom to thine own while he is yet a guileless unpolluted lamb my little arthur there you lie in sweet unconscious slumber the tiny epitome of your father but stainless yet as that pure snow new fallen from heaven god shield thee from his errors how will i watch and toil to guard thee from them he wakes his tiny arms are stretched towards me his eyes unclose they meet my gaze but will not answer it little angel you do not know me you cannot think of me or love me yet and yet how fervently my heart is knit to yours how grateful i am for all the joy you give me would that your father could share it with me that he could feel my love my hope and take an equal part in my resolves and projects for the future 
nay if he could but sympathize in half my views and share one half my feelings it would be indeed a blessing to both himself and me it would elevate and purify his mind and bind him closer to his home and me perhaps he will find awakening interest and affection for his child as it grows older at present he is pleased with the acquisition and hopes it will become a fine boy and a worthy heir and that is nearly all i can say at first it was a thing to wonder and laugh at not to touch now it is an object almost of indifference except when his impatience is roused by its utter helplessness and imperturbable stupidity as he calls it or my too close attention to its wants he frequently comes and sits beside me while i am busied with my maternal cares i hoped at first it was for the pleasure of contemplating our priceless treasure but i soon found it was only to enjoy my company or escape the pains of solitude he is kindly welcome of course but the best compliment to a mother is to appreciate her little one he shocked me very much on one occasion it was about a fortnight after the birth of our son and he was with me in the nursery we had neither of us spoken for some time i was lost in the contemplation of my nursling and i thought he was similarly occupied as far at least as i thought about him at all but suddenly he startled me from my reverie by impatiently exclaiming helen i shall positively hate that little wretch if you worship it so madly you are absolutely infatuated about it i looked up in astonishment to see if he could be in earnest you have not a thought to spare for anything else he continued in the same strain i may go or come be present or absent cheerful or sad it's all the same to you as long as you have that ugly little creature to dote upon you care not a farthing what becomes of me it is false arthur when you enter the room it always doubles my happiness when you are near me the sense of your presence delights me though i don't look at you and when i think about our child i please myself with the idea that you share my thoughts and feelings though i don't speak them how the devil can i waste my thoughts and feelings on a little worthless idiot like that it is your own son arthur or if that consideration has no weight with you it is mine and you ought to respect my feelings well don't be cross it was only a slip of the tongue pleaded he the little fellow is well enough only i can't worship him as you do you shall nurse him for me as a punishment said i rising to put my baby in its father's arms no don't helen don't cried he in real disquietude i will you'll love him better when you feel the little creature in your arms i deposited the precious burden in his hands and retreated to the other side of the room laughing at the ludicrous half embarrassed air with which he sat holding it at arm's length and looking upon it as if it were some curious being of quite a different species to himself come take it helen take it he cried at length i shall drop it if you don't compassionating his distress or rather the child's unsafe position i relieved him of the charge kiss it arthur do you've never kissed it yet said i kneeling and presenting it before him i would rather kiss its mother replied he embracing me there now won't that do as well i resumed my seat in the easy-chair and gave my little one a shower of gentle kisses to make up for its other parent's refusal there goes cried the jealous father that's more in one minute lavished on that little senseless thankless oyster than you have given me these three weeks past 
come here then you insatiable monopolist and you shall have as many as you like incorrigible and undeserving as you are there now won't that suffice i have a good mind never to give you another till you have learnt to love my baby as a father should i like the little devil arthur well the little angel well enough and he pinched its delicate little nose to prove his affection only i can't love it what is there to love it can't love me or you either it can't understand a single word you say to it or feel one spark of gratitude for all your kindness wait till it can show some little affection for me and then i'll see about loving it at present it is nothing more than a little selfish senseless sensualist and if you see anything adorable in it it's all very well i only wonder how you can if you were less selfish yourself arthur you would not regard it in that light possibly not love but so it is there's no help for it end of volume two chapter nine recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter ten of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume two chapter ten the neighbor december twenty fifth eighteen twenty three another year is gone my little arthur lives and thrives he is healthy but not robust full of gentle playfulness and vivacity already affectionate and susceptible of passions and emotions it will be long ere he can find words to express he has won his father's heart at last and now my constant terror is lest he should be ruined by that father's thoughtless indulgence but i must beware of my own weakness too for i never knew till now how strong are a parent's temptations to spoil an only child i have need of consolation in my son for to this silent paper i may confess it i have but little in my husband i love him still and he loves me in his own way but oh how different from the love i could have given and once had hoped to receive how little real sympathy there exists between us how many of my thoughts and feelings are gloomily cloistered within my own mind how much of my higher and better self is indeed unmarried doomed either to harden and sour in the sunless shade of solitude or to quite degenerate and fall away for lack of nutriment in this unwholesome soil but i repeat i have no right to complain only let me state the truth some of the truth at least and see hereafter if any darker truths will blot these pages we have now been full two years united the romance of our attachment must be worn away surely i have now got down to the lowest gradation in arthur's affection and discovered all the evils of his nature if there be any further change it must be for the better as we become still more accustomed to each other surely we shall find no lower depth than this and if so i can bear it well as well at least as i have borne it hitherto arthur is not what is commonly called a bad man he has many good qualities but he is a man without self-restraint or lofty aspirations a lover of pleasure given up to animal enjoyments he is not a bad husband but his notions of matrimonial duties and comforts are not my notions judging from appearances his idea of a wife is a thing to love one devotedly and to stay at home to wait upon her husband 
and amuse him and minister to his comfort in every possible way while he chooses to stay with her and when he is absent to attend to his interests domestic or otherwise and patiently wait his return no matter how he may be occupied in the meantime early in spring he announced his intention of going to london his affairs there demanded his attendance he said and he could refuse it no longer he expressed his regret at having to leave me but hoped i would amuse myself with the baby till he returned but why leave me i said i can go with you i can be ready at any time you would not take that child to town yes why not the thing was absurd the air of the town would be certain to disagree with him and with me as a nurse the late hours and london habits would not suit me under such circumstances and altogether he assured me that it would be excessively troublesome injurious and unsafe i overruled his objections as well as i could for i trembled at the thoughts of his going alone and would sacrifice almost anything for myself much even for my child to prevent it but at length he told me plainly and somewhat testily that he could not do with me he was worn out with the baby's restless nights and must have some repose i proposed separate apartments but it would not do the truth is arthur i said at last you are weary of my company and determined not to have me with you you might as well have said so at once he denied it but i immediately left the room and flew to the nursery to hide my feelings if i could not soothe them there i was too much hurt to express any further dissatisfaction with his plans or at all to refer to the subject again except for the necessary arrangements concerning his departure and the conduct of affairs during his absence till the day before he went when i earnestly exhorted him to take care of himself and keep out of the way of temptation he laughed at my anxiety but assured me there was no cause for it and promised to attend to my advice i suppose it is no use asking you to fix a day for your return said i why no i hardly can under the circumstances but be assured love i shall not be long away i don't wish to keep you a prisoner at home i replied i should not grumble at your staying whole months away if you can be happy so long without me provided i knew you were safe but i don't like the idea of your being there among your friends as you call them pooh pooh you silly girl do you think i can't take care of myself you didn't last time but this time arthur i added earnestly show me that you can and teach me that i need not fear to trust you he promised fair but in such a manner as we seek to soothe a child and did he keep his promise no and henceforth i can never trust his word bitter bitter confession tears blind me while i write it was early in march that he went and he did not return till july this time he did not trouble himself to make excuses as before and his letters were less frequent and shorter and less affectionate especially after the first few weeks they came slower and slower and more terse and careless every time but still when i omitted writing he complained of my neglect when i wrote sternly and coldly as i confess i frequently did at the last he blamed my harshness and said it was enough to scare him from his home when i tried mild persuasion he was a little more gentle in his replies and promised to return but i had learnt at last to disregard his promises those were four miserable months alternating between intense anxiety despair and indignation 
pity for him and pity for myself and yet through all i was not wholly comfortless i had my darling sinless inoffensive little one to console me but even this consolation was embittered by the constantly recurring thought how shall i teach him hereafter to respect his father and yet to avoid his example but i remembered that i had brought all these afflictions in a manner wilfully upon myself and i determined to bear them without a murmur at the same time i resolved not to give myself up to misery for the transgressions of another and endeavoured to divert myself as much as i could and besides the companionship of my child and my dear faithful rachel who evidently guessed my sorrows and felt for them though she was too discreet to allude to them i had my books and pencil my domestic affairs and the welfare and comfort of arthur's poor tenants and labourers to attend to and i sometimes sought and obtained amusement in the company of my young friend esther hargrave occasionally i rode over to see her and once or twice i had her to spend the day with me at the manor mrs hargrave did not visit london that season having no daughter to marry she thought it as well to stay at home and economize and for a wonder walter came down to join her in the beginning of june and stayed till near the close of august the first time i saw him was on a sweet warm evening when i was sauntering in the park with little arthur and rachel who was head nurse and lady's maid in one for with my secluded life and tolerably active habits i require but little attendance and as she had nursed me and coveted to nurse my child and was moreover so very trustworthy i preferred committing the important charge to her with a young nursery-maid under her directions to engaging any one else besides it saves money and since i have made acquaintance with arthur's affairs i have learnt to regard that as no trifling recommendation for by my own desire nearly the whole of the income of my fortune is devoted for years to come to the paying off of his debts and the money he contrives to squander away in london is incomprehensible but to return to mr hargrave i was standing with rachel beside the water amusing the laughing baby in her arms with a twig of willow laden with golden catkins when greatly to my surprise he entered the park mounted on his costly black hunter and crossed over the grass to meet me he saluted me with a very fine compliment delicately worded and modestly delivered withal which he had doubtless concocted as he rode along he told me he had brought a message from his mother who as he was riding that way had desired him to call at the manor and beg the pleasure of my company to a friendly family dinner to-morrow there is no one to meet but ourselves said he but esther is very anxious to see you and my mother fears you will feel solitary in this great house so much alone and wishes she could persuade you to give her the pleasure of your company more frequently and make yourself at home in our more humble dwelling till mr huntingdon's return shall render this a little more conducive to your comfort she is very kind i answered but i am not alone you see and those whose time is fully occupied seldom complain of solitude will you not come to-morrow then she will be sadly disappointed if you refuse i did not relish being thus compassionated for my loneliness but however i promised to come what a sweet evening this is observed he looking round upon the sunny park with its imposing swell and slope its placid water and majestic clumps of trees and what a paradise you live in it is a lovely evening answered i and i sighed to think how little i had felt its loveliness 
and how little of a paradise sweet grassdale was to me how still less to the voluntary exile from its scenes whether mr hargrave divined my thoughts i cannot tell but with a half-hesitating sympathising seriousness of tone and manner he asked if i had lately heard from mr huntingdon not lately i replied i thought not he muttered as if to himself looking thoughtfully on the ground are you not lately returned from london i asked only yesterday and did you see him there yes i saw him was he well yes that is said he with increasing hesitation and an appearance of suppressed indignation he was as well as as he deserved to be but under circumstances i should have deemed incredible for a man so favoured as he is he here looked up and pointed the sentence with a serious bow to me i suppose my face was crimson pardon me mrs huntingdon he continued but i cannot suppress my indignation when i behold such infatuated blindness and perversion of taste but perhaps you are not aware he paused i am aware of nothing sir except that he delays his coming longer than i expected and if at present he prefers the society of his friends to that of his wife and the dissipations of the town to the quiet of country life i suppose i have those friends to thank for it their tastes and occupations are similar to his and i don't see why his conduct should awaken either their indignation or surprise you wrong me cruelly answered he i have shared but little of mr huntingdon's society for the last few weeks and as for his tastes and occupations they are quite beyond me lonely wanderer as i am where i have but sipped and tasted he drains the cup to the dregs and if ever for a moment i have sought to drown the voice of reflection in madness and folly or if i have wasted too much of my time and talents among reckless and dissipated companions god knows i would gladly renounce them entirely and for ever if i had but half the blessings that man so thanklessly cast behind his back but half the inducements to virtue and domestic orderly habits that he despises but such a home and such a partner to share it it is infamous he muttered between his teeth and don't think mrs huntingdon he added aloud that i could be guilty of inciting him to persevere in his present pursuits on the contrary i have remonstrated with him again and again i have frequently expressed my surprise at his conduct and reminded him of his duties and his privileges but to no purpose he only enough mr hargrave you ought to be aware that whatever my husband's faults may be it can only aggravate the evil for me to hear them from a stranger's lips am i then a stranger said he in a sorrowful tone i am your nearest neighbour your son's godfather and your husband's friend may i not be yours also intimate acquaintance must precede real friendship i know but little of you mr hargrave except from report have you then forgotten the six or seven weeks i spent under your roof last autumn i have not forgotten them and i know enough of you mrs huntingdon to think that your husband is the most enviable man in the world and i should be the next if you would deem me worthy of your friendship if you knew more of me you would not think it or if you did you would not say it and expect me to be flattered by the compliment i stepped backward as i spoke he saw that i wished the conversation to end and immediately taking the hint he gravely bowed wished me good evening and turned his horse towards the road 
he appeared grieved and hurt at my unkind reception of his sympathizing overtures i was not sure that i had done right in speaking so harshly to him but at the time i had felt irritated almost insulted by his conduct it seemed as if he was presuming upon the absence and neglect of my husband and insinuating even more than the truth against him rachel had moved on during our conversation to some yards distance he rode up to her and asked to see the child he took it carefully into his arms looked upon it with an almost paternal smile and i heard him say as i approached and this too he has forsaken he then tenderly kissed it and restored it to the gratified nurse are you fond of children mr hargrave said i a little softened towards him not in general he replied but that is such a sweet child and so like its mother he added in a lower tone you are mistaken there it is its father it resembles am i not right nurse said he appealing to rachel i think sir there's a bit of both she replied he departed and rachel pronounced him a very nice gentleman i still had my doubts on the subject when i met him on the morrow under his own roof he did not offend me with any more of his virtuous indignation against arthur or unwelcome sympathy for me and indeed when his mother began in guarded terms to intimate her sorrow and surprise at my husband's conduct he perceiving my annoyance instantly came to the rescue and delicately turned the conversation at the same time warning her by a sidelong glance not to recur to the subject again he seemed bent upon doing the honours of his house in the most unexceptionable manner and exerting all his powers for the entertainment of his guest and the display of his own qualifications as a host a gentleman and a companion and actually succeeded in making himself very agreeable only that he was too polite and yet mr hargrave i don't much like you there is a certain want of openness about you that does not take my fancy and a lurking selfishness at the bottom of all your fine qualities that i do not intend to lose sight of no for instead of combating my slight prejudice against you as uncharitable i mean to cherish it until i am convinced that i have no reason to distrust this kind insinuating friendship you are so anxious to push upon me in the course of the following six weeks i met him several times but always save once in company with his mother or his sister or both when i called on them he always happened to be at home and when they called on me it was always he that drove them over in the phaeton his mother evidently was quite delighted with his dutiful attentions and newly acquired domestic habits the time that i met him alone was on a bright but not oppressively hot day in the beginning of july i had taken little arthur into the wood that skirts the park and there seated him on the moss-cushioned roots of an old oak and having gathered a handful of bluebells and wild roses i was kneeling before him and presenting them one by one to the grasp of his tiny fingers enjoying the heavenly beauty of the flowers through the medium of his smiling eyes forgetting for the moment all my cares laughing at his gleeful laughter and delighting myself with his delight when a shadow suddenly eclipsed the little space of sunshine and the grass before us and looking up i beheld walter hargrave standing and gazing upon us excuse me mrs huntingdon said he but i was spellbound i had neither the power to come forward and interrupt you nor to withdraw from the contemplation of such a scene how vigorous my little godson grows and how merry he is this morning 
he approached the child and stooped to take his hand but on seeing that his caresses were likely to produce tears and lamentations instead of a reciprocation of friendly demonstrations he prudently drew back what a pleasure and comfort that little creature must be to you mrs huntingdon he observed with a touch of sadness in his intonation as he admiringly contemplated the infant it is replied i and then i asked after his mother and sister he politely answered my inquiries and then returned again to the subject i wished to avoid though with a degree of timidity that witnessed his fear to offend you have not heard from huntingdon lately he said not this week i replied not these three weeks i might have said i had a letter from him this morning i wish it were such a one as i could show to his lady he half drew from his waistcoat pocket a letter with arthur's still beloved hand on the address scowled at it and put it back again adding but he tells me he is about to return next week he tells me so every time he writes indeed well it is like him but to me he always avowed it his intention to stay till the present month it struck me like a blow this proof of premeditated transgression and systematic disregard of truth it is only of a piece with the rest of his conduct observed mr hargrave thoughtfully regarding me and reading i suppose my feelings in my face then he is really coming next week said i after a pause you may rely upon it if the assurance can give you any pleasure and is it possible mrs huntingdon that you can rejoice at his return he exclaimed attentively perusing my features again of course mr hargrave is he not my husband oh huntingdon you know not what you slight he passionately murmured i took up my baby and wishing him good morning departed to indulge my thoughts unscrutinized within the sanctum of my home and was i glad yes delighted though i was angered by arthur's conduct and though i felt that he had wronged me and was determined he should feel it too End of volume two, chapter ten. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume two, chapter eleven of the Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume two, chapter eleven. Domestic scenes on the following morning i received a few lines from him myself confirming hargrave's intimations respecting his approaching return and he did come next week but in a condition of body and mind even worse than before i did not however intend to pass over his derelictions this time without a remark i found it would not do but the first day he was weary with his journey and i was glad to get him back i would not upbraid him then i would wait till to-morrow next morning he was weary still i would wait a little longer but at dinner when after breakfasting at twelve o'clock on a bottle of soda-water and a cup of strong coffee and lunching at two on another bottle of soda-water mingled with brandy he was finding fault with everything on the table and declaring we must change our cook i thought the time was come it is the same cook as we had before you went arthur said i you were generally pretty well satisfied with her then you must have been letting her get into slovenly habits then while i was away it is enough to poison one eating such a disgusting mess and he pettishly pushed away his plate and leant back despairingly in his chair i think it is you that are changed not she said i 
but with the utmost gentleness for i did not wish to irritate him it may be so he replied carelessly as he seized a tumbler of wine and water adding when he had tossed it off for i have an infernal fire in my veins that all the waters of the ocean cannot quench what kindled it i was about to ask but at that moment the butler entered and began to take away the things be quick benson do have done with that infernal clatter cried his master and don't bring the cheese unless you want to make me sick outright benson in some surprise removed the cheese and did his best to effect the quiet and speedy clearance of the rest but unfortunately there was a rumple in the carpet caused by the hasty pushing back of his master's chair at which he tripped and stumbled causing a rather alarming concussion with a trayful of crockery in his hands but no positive damage save the fall and breaking of a sauce tureen but to my unspeakable shame and dismay arthur turned furiously around upon him and swore at him with savage coarseness the poor man turned pale and visibly trembled as he stooped to pick up the fragments he couldn't help it arthur said i the carpet caught his foot and there's no great harm done never mind the pieces now benson you can clear them away afterwards glad to be released benson expeditiously set out the dessert and withdrew what could you mean helen by taking the servant's part against me said arthur as soon as the door was closed when you knew i was distracted i did not know you were distracted arthur and the poor man was quite frightened and hurt at your sudden explosion poor man indeed and do you think i could stop to consider the feelings of an insensate brute like that when my own nerves were racked and torn to pieces by his confounded blunders i never heard you complain of your nerves before and why shouldn't i have nerves as well as you oh i don't dispute your claim to their possession but i never complain of mine no how should you when you never do anything to try them then why do you try yours arthur you think i have nothing to do but to stay at home and take care of myself like a woman is it impossible then to take care of yourself like a man when you go abroad you told me that you could and would too and you promised come come helen don't begin with that nonsense now i can't bear it can't bear what to be reminded of the promises you have broken helen you are cruel if you knew how my heart throbbed and how every nerve thrilled through me while you spoke you would spare me you can pity a dolt of a servant for breaking a dish but you have no compassion for me when my head is split in two and all on fire with this consuming fever he leant his head on his hand and sighed i went to him and put my hand on his forehead it was burning indeed then come with me into the drawing-room arthur and don't take any more wine you've taken several glasses since dinner and eaten next to nothing all the day how can that make you better with some coaxing and persuasion i got him to leave the table when the baby was brought i tried to amuse him with that but poor little arthur was cutting his teeth and his father could not bear his complaints sentence of immediate banishment was passed upon him on the first indication of fretfulness and because in the course of the evening i went to share his exile for a little while i was reproached on my return for preferring my child to my husband i found the latter reclining on the sofa just as i had left him well exclaimed the injured man in a tone of pseudo resignation i thought i wouldn't send for you i thought i'd just see how long it would please you to leave me alone i have not been very long have i arthur i have not been an hour i'm sure oh 
of course an hour is nothing to you so pleasantly employed but to me it has not been pleasantly employed interrupted i i have been nursing our poor little baby who is very far from well and i could not leave him till i got him to sleep oh to be sure you're overflowing with kindness and pity for everything but me and why should i pity you what is the matter with you well that passes everything after all the wear and tear that i've had when i come home sick and weary longing for comfort and expecting to find attention and kindness at least from my wife she calmly asked me what is the matter with me there is nothing the matter with you returned i except what you have wilfully brought upon yourself against my earnest exhortation and entreaty now helen said he emphatically half rising from his recumbent posture if you bother me with another word i'll ring the bell and order six bottles of wine and by heaven i'll drink them dry before i stir from this place i said no more but sat down before the table and drew a book towards me do let me have quietness at least continued he if you deny me every other comfort and sinking back into his former position with an impatient expiration between a sigh and a groan he languidly closed his eyes as if to sleep what the book was that lay open on the table before me i cannot tell for i never looked at it with an elbow on each side of it and my hands clasped before my eyes i delivered myself up to silent weeping but arthur was not asleep at the first slight sob he raised his head and looked round impatiently exclaiming what are you crying for helen what the deuce is the matter now i'm crying for you arthur i replied speedily drying my tears and starting up i threw myself on my knees before him and clasping his nerveless hand between my own continued don't you know that you are a part of myself and do you think you can injure and degrade yourself and i not feel it degrade myself helen yes degrade what have you been doing all this time you'd better not ask said he with a faint smile and you had better not tell but you cannot deny that you have degraded yourself miserably you have shamefully wronged yourself body and soul and me too and i can't endure it quietly and i won't well don't squeeze my hand so frantically and don't agitate me so for heaven's sake oh hattersley you were right this woman will be the death of me with her keen feelings and her interesting force of character there there do spare me a little arthur you must repent cried i in a frenzy of desperation throwing my arms around him and burying my face in his bosom you shall say you are sorry for what you have done well well i am you are not you'll do it again i shall never live to do it again if you treat me so savagely replied he pushing me from him you've nearly squeezed the breath out of my body he pressed his hand to his heart and looked really agitated and ill now get me a glass of wine said he to remedy what you've done you she-tiger i'm almost ready to faint i flew to get the required remedy it seemed to revive him considerably what a shame it is said i as i took the empty glass from his hand for a strong young man like you to reduce yourself to such a state if you knew all my girl you'd say rather what a wonder it is you can bear it so well as you do i've lived more in these four months helen than you have in the whole course of your existence or will to the end of your days if they numbered a hundred years so i must expect to pay for it in some shape 
you will have to pay a higher price than you anticipate if you don't take care there will be the total loss of your own health and of my affection too if that is of any value to you what you're at that game of threatening me with the loss of your affection again are you i think it couldn't have been very genuine stuff to begin with if it's so easily demolished if you don't mind my pretty tyrant you'll make me regret my choice in good earnest and envy my friend hattersley his meek little wife she's quite a pattern to her sex helen he had her with him in london all the season and she was no trouble at all he might amuse himself just as he pleased in regular bachelor style and she never complained of neglect he might come home at any hour of the night or morning or not come home at all be sullen sober or glorious drunk and play the fool or the madman to his own heart's desire without any fear or botheration she never gives him a word of reproach or complaint do what he will he says there's not such a jewel in all england and swears he wouldn't take a kingdom for her but he makes her life a curse to her not he she has no will but his and is always contented and happy as long as he is enjoying himself well in that case she is as great a fool as he is but it is not so i have several letters from her expressing the greatest anxiety about his proceedings and complaining that you incite him to commit those extravagances one especially in which she implores me to use my influence with you to get you away from london and affirms that her husband never did such things before you came and would certainly discontinue them as soon as you departed and left him to the guidance of his own good sense the detestable little traitor give me the letter and he shall see it as sure as i'm a living man no he shall not see it without her consent but if he did there is nothing there to anger him nor in any of the others she never speaks a word against him it is only anxiety for him that she expresses she only alludes to his conduct in the most delicate terms and makes every excuse for him that she can possibly think of and as for her own misery i rather feel it than see it expressed in her letters but she abuses me and no doubt you helped her no i told her she overrated my influence with you that i would gladly draw you away from the temptations of the town if i could but had little hope of success and that i thought she was wrong in supposing that you enticed mr hattersley or any one else into error i had myself held the contrary opinion at one time but i now believed that you mutually corrupted each other and perhaps if she used a little gentle but serious remonstrance with her husband it might be of some service as though he was more rough-hewn than mine i believed he was of a less impenetrable material and so that is the way you go on heartening each other up to mutiny and abusing each other's partners and throwing out implications against your own to the mutual gratification of both according to your own account said i my evil counsel has had but little effect upon her and as to abuse and aspersions we are both of us far too deeply ashamed of the errors and vices of our other halves to make them the common subject of our correspondence friends as we are we would willingly keep your failings to ourselves even from ourselves if we could unless by knowing them we could deliver you from them well well don't worry me about them you'll never effect any good by that have patience with me and bear with my languor and crossness a little while till i get this cursed low fever out of my veins and then you'll find me cheerful and kind as ever why can't you be gentle and good as you were last time i'm sure i was very grateful for it and what good did your gratitude do 
i deluded myself with the idea that you were ashamed of your transgressions and hoped you would never repeat them again but now you have left me nothing to hope my case is quite desperate is it a very blessed consideration if it will only secure me from the pain and worry of my dear anxious wife's efforts to convert me and her from the toil and trouble of such exertions and her sweet face and silver accents from the ruinous effects of the same a burst of passion is a fine rousing thing upon occasion helen and a flood of tears is marvellously affecting but when indulged too often they are both deuced plaguy things for spoiling one's beauty and tiring out one's friends thenceforth i restrained my tears and passions as much as i could i spared him my exhortations and fruitless efforts at conversion too for i saw it was all in vain god might awaken that heart supine and stupefied with self-indulgence and remove the film of sensual darkness from his eyes but i could not his injustice and ill-humour towards his inferiors who could not defend themselves i still resented and withstood but when i alone was their object as was frequently the case i endured it with calm forbearance except at times when my temper worn out by repeated annoyances or stung to distraction by some new instance of irrationality gave way in spite of myself and exposed me to the imputations of fierceness cruelty and impatience i attended carefully to his wants and amusements but not i own with the same devoted fondness as before because i could not feel it besides i had now another claimant on my time and care my ailing infant for whose sake i frequently braved and suffered the reproaches and complaints of his unreasonably exacting father but arthur is not naturally a peevish or irritable man so far from it that there was something almost ludicrous in the incongruity of this adventitious fretfulness and nervous irritability rather calculated to excite laughter than anger if it were not for the intensely painful considerations attendant upon those symptoms of a disordered frame and his temper gradually improved as his bodily health was restored which was much sooner than would have been the case but for my strenuous exertions for there was still one thing about him that i did not give up in despair and one effort for his preservation that i would not remit his appetite for the stimulus of wine had increased upon him as i had too well foreseen it was now something more to him than an accessory to social enjoyment it was an important source of enjoyment in itself in this time of weakness and depression he would have made it his medicine and support his comforter his recreation and his friend and thereby sunk deeper and deeper and bound himself down forever in the bathos whereinto he had fallen but i determined this should never be as long as i had any influence left and though i could not prevent him from taking more than was good for him still by incessant perseverance by kindness and firmness and vigilance by coaxing and daring and determination i succeeded in preserving him from absolute bondage to that detestable propensity so insidious in its advances so inexorable in its tyranny so disastrous in its effects and here i must not forget that i am not a little indebted to his friend mr hargrave about that time he frequently called at grassdale and often dined with us on which occasions i fear arthur would willingly have cast prudence and decorum to the winds and made a night of it as often as his friend would have consented to join him in that exalted pastime 
and if the latter had chosen to comply he might in a night or two have ruined the labour of weeks and overthrown with a touch the frail bulwark it had cost me such trouble and toil to construct i was so fearful of this at first that i humbled myself to intimate to him in private my apprehensions of arthur's proneness to these excesses and to express a hope that he would not encourage it he was pleased with this mark of confidence and certainly did not betray it on that and every subsequent occasion his presence served rather as a check upon his host than an incitement to further acts of intemperance and he always succeeded in bringing him from the dining-room in good time and in tolerably good condition for if arthur disregarded such intimations as well i must not detain you from your lady or we must not forget that mrs huntingdon is alone he would insist upon leaving the table himself to join me and his host however unwillingly was obliged to follow hence i learnt to welcome mr hargrave as a real friend to the family a harmless companion for arthur to cheer his spirits and preserve him from the tedium of absolute idleness and a total isolation from all society but mine and a useful ally to me i could not but feel grateful to him under such circumstances and i did not scruple to acknowledge my obligation on the first convenient opportunity yet as i did so my heart whispered all was not right and brought a glow to my face which he heightened by his steady serious gaze while by his manner of receiving those acknowledgments he more than doubled my misgivings his high delight at being able to serve me was chastened by sympathy for me and commiseration for himself about i know not what for i would not stay to inquire or suffer him to unburden his sorrows to me his sighs and intimations of suppressed affliction seemed to come from a full heart but either he must contrive to retain them within it or breathe them forth in other ears than mine there was enough of confidence between us already it seemed wrong that there should exist a secret understanding between my husband's friend and me unknown to him of which he was the object but my afterthought was if it is wrong surely arthur's is the fault not mine and indeed i know not whether at the time it was not for him rather than myself that i blushed for since he and i are one i so identify myself with him that i feel his degradation his failings and transgressions as my own i blush for him i fear for him i repent for him weep pray and feel for him as for myself but i cannot act for him and hence i must be and i am debased contaminated by the union both in my own eyes and in the actual truth i am so determined to love him so intensely anxious to excuse his errors that i am continually dwelling upon them and labouring to extenuate the loosest of his principles and the worst of his practices till i am familiarized with vice and almost a partaker in his sins things that formerly shocked and disgusted me now seem only natural i know them to be wrong because reason and god's word declare them to be so but i am gradually losing that instinctive horror and repulsion which was given me by nature or instilled into me by the precepts and example of my aunt perhaps then i was too severe in my judgments for i abhorred the sinner as well as the sin now i flatter myself i am more charitable and considerate but am i not becoming more indifferent and insensate too fool that i was to dream that i had strength and purity enough to save myself and him 
such vain presumption would be rightly served if i should perish with him in the gulf from which i sought to save him yet god preserve me from it in him too yes poor arthur i will still hope and pray for you and though i write as if you were some abandoned wretch past hope and past reprieve it is only my anxious fears my strong desires that make me do so one who loved you less would be less bitter less dissatisfied his conduct has of late been what the world calls irreproachable but then i know his heart is still unchanged and i know that spring is approaching and deeply dread the consequences as he began to recover the tone and vigour of his exhausted frame and with it something of his former impatience of retirement and repose i suggested a short residence by the seaside for his recreation and further restoration and for the benefit of our little one as well but no watering-places were so intolerably dull besides he had been invited by one of his friends to spend a month or two in scotland for the better recreation of grouse shooting and deer stalking and had promised to go then you will leave me again arthur said i yes dearest but only to love you the better when i come back and make up for all past offences and shortcomings and you needn't fear me this time there are no temptations on the mountains and during my absence you may pay a visit to staningley if you like your uncle and aunt have been long wanting us to go there you know but somehow there's such a repulsion between the good lady and me that i never could bring myself up to the scratch i was perfectly willing to avail myself of this permission though not a little apprehensive of my aunt's questions and comments concerning my matrimonial experience regarding which i had been very reserved in my letters for i had not much that was pleasant to communicate about the third week in august arthur set out for scotland and mr hargrave accompanied him thither to my private satisfaction shortly after i with little arthur and rachel went to staningley my dear old home which as well as my dear old friends its inhabitants i saw again with mingled feelings of pleasure and pain so intimately blended that i could scarcely distinguish the one from the other or tell to which to attribute the various tears and smiles and sighs awakened by those old familiar scenes and tones and faces not quite two years had passed since i had seen and heard them last but it seemed a far far longer time and well it might for how immeasurably changed was i how many things had i not seen and felt and learnt since then my uncle too appeared perceptibly more aged and infirm my aunt more sad and grave i believe she thought i had repented of my rashness though she did not openly express her conviction or triumphantly remind me of her slighted counsels as i had partly feared she would but she observed me narrowly more narrowly than i liked to be observed and seemed to mistrust my cheerfulness and unduly mark each little indication of sadness or serious thought to notice all my casual observations and silently draw her own inferences from them while by a system of quiet cross-questioning renewed from time to time she drew from me many things i should not otherwise have told her and laying this and that together obtained i fear a pretty clear conception of my husband's faults and my afflictions though not of my remaining sources of comfort and hope for though i endeavoured to impress her strongly with the notion of arthur's redeeming qualities of our mutual affection and the many causes i had for thankfulness and self-congratulation she received all such intimations coldly and calmly as if mentally making her own deductions 
which deductions i am persuaded were generally far beyond the truth though i certainly did exaggerate a little in attempting to picture the bright side of my position was it pride that made me so extremely anxious to appear satisfied with my lot or merely a just determination to bear my self-imposed burden alone and preserve my best friend from the slightest participation in those sorrows from which she had striven so hard to save me it might have been something of each but i am sure the latter motive was predominant i did not much prolong my visit for not only did i feel my aunt's relentless watchfulness and incredulity to be a restraint upon me and a silent reproach that oppressed me more than she could well imagine but i was sensible that my little arthur was an annoyance to his uncle though the latter wished him well and no great amusement to his aunt though an object of her earnest affection and anxious solicitude dear aunt have you so tenderly reared me from infancy so carefully guided and instructed me in childhood and youth and could i give you no return but this to disappoint your hopes oppose your wishes scorn your warnings and advice and darken your latter years with anxious fears and sorrow for the sufferings you cannot relieve it almost broke my heart to think of it and again and again i endeavoured to convince her that i was happy and contented with my lot but her last words as she embraced me and kissed the child in my arms before i entered the carriage were take care of your son helen and there may be happy days in store for you yet how great a comfort and treasure he is to you now i can well imagine but if you spoil him to gratify your present feelings it will be too late to repent it when your heart is broken arthur did not come home till several weeks after my return to grassdale but i did not feel so anxious about him now to think of him engaged in active sports among the wild hills of scotland was very different from knowing him to be immersed amid the corruptions and temptations of london his letters now though neither long nor lover-like were more regular than ever they had been before and when he did return to my great joy instead of being worse than when he went he was more cheerful and vigorous and better in every respect since that time i have had little cause to complain he still has an unfortunate predilection for the pleasures of the table against which i have to struggle and watch but he has begun to notice his boy and that is an increasing source of amusement to him within doors while his fox-hunting and coursing are a sufficient occupation for him without when the ground is not hardened by frost so that he is not wholly dependent on me for entertainment but it is now january spring is approaching and i repeat i dread the consequences of its arrival that sweet season i once so joyously welcomed as the time of hope and gladness awakens now far other anticipations by its return end of volume two chapter eleven recording by expatriate in bangor maine Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.